newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers, plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ding-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis, and on our best days, some insight into the media issues of the past week. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union. Happy to welcome you here with Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio. Sir? My pleasure. My pleasure to be here amongst you people who are stark defenders of anything that a newspaper ever did or wanted to do. I'm here to keep you honest. That's us. Ah, what can you do? Rosemary Armeo, investigative journalist, editor, professor, and so on. She has great experience in this. Are you really going to be the stark defender of everything journalistic the way Alan accuses you? No, he accuses us of that all the time. I think we bash papers a lot. Not as much as we bash radio, maybe. Is that what he's saying? <laughs> that seems fair. And Judy Patrick is here, a longtime editor of the Daily Gazette, now vice president of the New York Press Association. How are you? You know, I've just realized that I think Alan Shartok has an anti-newspaper bias. Ah, uh-huh. oh, that's, that's the old, you know, business about you're critical and therefore you have a bias. <laughs> I get it, you know, but it's really beneath you, Judy, to be saying untrue <laughs> things like that. That's right. Be kind. Can't we all just get along? Trying to get along, of course, the fine gentlemen who are CEOs of Facebook, Amazon, Google, and Apple. The four big tech giants, of course, appeared before Congress this past week. An historic antitrust hearing, let's say. How do we think it went? Alan, were you uh, fixed to this? Were you interested in what these guys had to say? I was very interested in it. You know, my predilections are basically in favor of Amazon. So easy. We get anything we want from Amazon. I'm not about to bash them. In fact, I don't know that they've cost WAMC any money or anything like that. You guys are always screaming that they're stealing all your money. And that's so unfair. (laughs) Judy, are you screaming at the tech giants taking your money, Alan says? Is that true? They're certainly exploiting journalism, exploiting local businesses uh, with their secret algorithms. They're um, hypocrites about privacy. Let's see. Uh, and every once in a while, they'll, they'll throw us a piddly little rescue grant to say, oh, we're going to help save local journalism. Google and Facebook particularly are bad for journalism. Amazon is bad for local businesses. I'm a great believer in capitalism and competitive uh, industry, but they've gotten so big that they are you know, running the table like they own it, and they do own it. And so something needs to be done to maybe force them to pay for the journalism that they're stealing. Eighty percent of the ad dollars digitally – spend in this country go to these four businesses. So they do have quite the market share. Rosemary, what was your take on these hearings for starters? 
the guy from Google, he's going to be replaced. He did terrible. He made the company look every bit as vicious as the congressman wanted them to look. The congressman looked bad. I mean, they got Twitter and Facebook mixed up at one point. Better than when Zuckerberg first was in front of Congress, but still way behind, which gives, of course, the tech giants a great big advantage. Bezos, I think, came out the best. He was smart, sharp, fast. He did what they all wanted to do. I think he did it the best. Where will this end up? I mean, I have to say they're in the position they are now because they came up with a way to market and bank on new technology that none of the rest of the media has. So partly, not entirely, but partly they have earned the place they are. Amazon beats out local stores because you go into a local store and you have to deal with surly clerks and they don't have stuff. You go online and it's fast, easy, and everything you want is at your hand. There's a reason that they have attained the mastery they have. But they also have used that mastery to put down people that they need and people that they ought to be competing with. And I think Congress is right to go in and try to fix it. I just think they're so outmatched. I worry about what we're going to end up with. Can we talk about what a disadvantage local media companies are when it comes to Google searches? For example, if you search the word Albany, you would expect you would get information from the local Albany newspaper. You don't. On the first page, they always give preference to really big publishers, and it's a detriment of local, small local newspapers or other kinds of media outlets. The algorithms, the search engines are all in favor of the big companies to the detriment of the small companies who are denied the traffic they need to get those dimes and nickels coming from Google, as much as, you know, you you get a little bit of revenue stream from the Google ads, but you don't get very much and you're deprived of most of them, especially when you break the story, because within seconds, all that traffic goes to the big guys, New York Times, the Washington Post, and it's unfair. And the other thing that's a real issue is they keep a secret how they do it. And so publishers are left scrambling, trying to figure out, well, how do I get a high ranking on a Google search? And in fact, it's a whole industry that has developed of people who promise that they can get you to the top of the page. And uh, I don't think it's true. By the way, I just wanted you all to know that on my shopping list today, over to the big one, uh, was grapes. I, want, I particularly like sour grapes. But now I realize after, after this program that I don't have to go after all. There's plenty here. Oh, <laughs> oh man. Okay, record that one as one of the uh, great comments here. But here's one of the problems, too, that I don't know got addressed adequately in the congressional hearing, and that is the prevalence of misinformation on these websites. Of course, our stock in trade and journalism is to try to give people accurate information, to give people a true view of what lies beyond their own experience. We sometimes fail, but we do our best. But misinformation is often among the most viewed and most engaged content online, on Facebook in particular. Just this past week, uh, there was a, a viral video claiming a false cure for the coronavirus. Got 20 million views on the social network before Facebook finally said, oh, maybe we should take it off because it's fake. But now here's the difficulty, of course. If you tell Facebook you have to take out false information, then what you're doing is you're restricting the freedom of access, the freedom of speech, in fact, that people seem to value. Is there a solution to that? or do we yeah, just? You're not taking speech off of the Internet if you remove fake news. You're doing what editors do every day, which is taking fake information or incorrect information out of stories. That's not being done now. And what we're faced with is a government and a population, me, 
very upset about misinformation, and so you're going to end up having the government, you have the Trump administration telling us what's false and what's not and what can stay on and what can't. That is more horrible to me than having the fake information on in, in many ways. You're going to have slanted news. You're going to have just as fake information. And what needs to be done is journalists need to be working for the companies that are putting up content. That's been the solution for years, and they keep avoiding it. That would also be a real way to put money back into the journalism economy. The idea of that Congress sitting there saying, oh, oh, we have to save journalism. These companies are hurting journalists makes me laugh. They don't give a hoot about that. Right. What you're saying is Facebook needs to hire journalists to do the vetting the same way that newspapers, radio stations, TV stations have done that for years. But this is a problem because Facebook's business is built on getting our attention. They want us to have their site open so they can show us ads. That's how they make money. So the more controversial the post is, the more people are going to share or comment on it and the more money Facebook's going to make. So in a way, doing good journalism, which you're suggesting, which I think is admirable, is contrary to Facebook's business interests. Is that not the purpose of a newspaper, too, is to get attention and readers and to present news in a way that people want to read it? How is that different from Facebook or Google? Exactly. Not, not only that, Rex, but I watched the Fox channel the other day, and I thought it was outrageous what I was listening to. So one has to wonder if you're so sure of yourself that we can ascertain what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's not true. It leads down to a very slippery slope, does it not? When you have the power that Facebook has, though, and you are less than responsible in exerting influence over fake information, the only solution, isn't it, is to break it up, is to say you can't be this big, it's anti-competitive, it's hurting the country because your voice is so much louder than any other voice in the marketplace. That's how we got innovation in the communication industry when the phone company was broken up back in the early 80s by federal action. Remember how successful that was? Now the baby bells or the papa bells, you know, they grow up. They grow up, but for a while, but I don't know what kind of innovation we would have had if that hadn't happened. You know, Zuckerberg was saying that he employs 30,000 people to review content, but there is so much content that it's hard to keep track of. Well, maybe breaking it up and having a smaller amount of content to deal with is a good idea. All we're asking for them is to use some judgment. It took them a good eight hours to recognize that that video, that viral video promoting the untruths about a coronavirus cure, it took them eight or ten hours to knock that thing down. And it's still out there now. Once it's out on the web, it is hard to remove entirely. So they needed to act more quickly. Uh, 30,000 people apparently isn't enough to keep track of everything. Are you citing the instance that Donald Trump Jr. tweeted, published by Breitbart News, and it went viral, featuring a, a doctor making false claims that masks are unnecessary, touting hydroxychloroquine as a cure, you know? As you know, right. they put him on probation. Actually, they took Donald Trump Jr., they rescinded his authority to be on there, and then I'm sure he'll get 10 times as many people watching him afterwards as did before or listening to him than did before. No? I think that use of that viral video as an example of what we're faced with is false. You have the president of the United States touted and he was defending his son and saying, yeah, yeah, I heard great things about the woman, the one who thinks that alien sex is responsible for gynecological diseases. That's why it went viral. It isn't, it isn't just that the fake information went viral. It is that we all know that the president was touting this ridiculous woman. It's the news. They should have taken eight hours to figure out if they should put it up or not. And then after that, the, the whole news, the whole story got out. It ran, and it shouldn't have. 
We all seem to know that. We seem to be aware of it. So it was tweeted, but it was also on Facebook. So both platforms have responsibility to deal with this. It was actually Breitbart, which is a a newspaper that put it out in the first place. It, It wasn't Google who invented it. It's the distribution through the social media networks that's the problem. It just goes so quickly that it spreads everywhere. But do you really think government will do a better job than editors anyplace in keeping uh, news that should not get out from getting out at all? I don't think they can tamp on it. Then you really are talking about suppressing news. You're going to vet everything before you put it out. No, no, not the government doing so. No, what I'm saying is that maybe that the only option is not government control, as you note. It is, frankly, to bust up these big companies so that they are small enough to actually make better judgments so that there is competition, so that eventually people will move toward credibility, toward information that is real as opposed to what's not. I mean, we have this problem all the time, but sometimes even the the least responsible of journalism organizations step forward. We had an example in the past week involving Sinclair Broadcast Group, which is a right-wing owner of TV stations. They own in the Albany market WRGB Channel 6 CBS outlet here, and there are must-carries. There are shows that they put on that they require the newscast to air, that they require their stations to have. Sinclair decided to postpone a segment featuring this researcher, uh, Judy Mikovits, of a pandemic that had included this notion that Dr. Fauci created coronavirus, right? That COVID-19 was actually his creation, that he manufactured and shipped it to Wuhan. You know, this is preposterous. That segment had been given to the stations to air, but Sinclair, upon further review, decided to pull it back for review and then finally decided not to air it. This is ultimately, of course, a smart editorial decision to pull it back, but my goodness, so much stuff that is not quite that outrageous but is nevertheless questionable gets out there anyway, and you just have to have some confidence that eventually people will turn toward credible news sources as opposed to lies. I don't know what the solution other than that is. That's an extraordinary thing when popular opinion outrage resulted in the story being pulled back. I, I cannot think of any reputable outlet that would pull back a story because there was some concern about it coming out. If you back a story, you back a story. That's it. That was disgraceful. The segment is one that Sinclair now says, well, we don't endorse the conspiracy theory, but we were comfortable airing it because there was some further commentary about it. You know, I don't think that in our experience as editors, as in our journalism world, when we know that something is false, it is our responsibility to not air it, to not publish it. Isn't that correct? Um, I mean, I think we make these decisions all the time, that even if something is a matter of public controversy, we don't publish what we know to be untrue, even if it's popular. But what you it was do, probably what... libelous, which may be reasons they pulled it back. Fauci is a public figure, and they cannot be libeled unless you print something that you know is false or you have every reason to believe is false. Doesn't that fit the occasion? That was just straight-out libel. I think that's right. Alan? Well, if you look at New York Times versus Sullivan, you will see that the information that was given out in that ad, which was the basis of the case, was false, but The Supreme Court of the United States, in its wisdom, said, as I remember the case, it's more important to have the dissemination of information, even if it's wrong, and freedom of speech, freedom of the press. So, Rosemary, I'm not sure I could go along with Fauci actually suing. I doubt he would. I think that you have miscalculated 
characterize the Sullivan case, which is extremely important in journalism. The ad was fundamentally correct. It was truthful, the court found. It had mistakes in it, which is not the same as being false, not the same as saying hydrochloroquine will cure COVID. It had a telephone number wrong. It had a title wrong. There were minor fixes. And what that court ruling said was journalists can make mistakes and still have important things to say that we need to hear. Of course, Fauci did not sued, but he might have. And a lawyer would have told Sinclair or should have told Sinclair that you're, you're putting out material that is libelous. I would expect no less from you, Rosemary, or for your colleagues. You know, I mean, mistruth is a mistruth. And it's quite clear that at that point of the game, the game was on, right? In other words, anybody could say whatever they want. You know, one can get some Well, Alan, I hope that you accept, I hope you recognize the fact that WAMC's news department is protected by the First Amendment, protected by the Sullivan case, because if you make a mistake and you're going to be sued for it, if that is the case, if errors are going to enable people to file libel suits, then you're going to have some hefty legal bills at WAMC. Yes, exactly right. It's exactly right. And one of the things I've always thought was unfair, as long as you continually come to WAMC, is that the Times Union, for example, has a cadre of lawyers, which most people don't have. So you guys are in better shape than um, people who really, the moment they have to come up with $50,000 to defend even an unfair, mistruthful allegation, they have to back off because they haven't got the 50000 I don't think you still are getting the court holding. And I agree with you. WAMC yeah. is better off because of that decision. But let's face it, there's all kinds of wiggle room here when it comes to libel law. Who uses it? Who can use it? Donald Trump likes to use it. Well, he threatens, of course. He makes outrageous threats, the most famous being a threat to the New York Times to sue if they publish information about the case involving one of the women who claims that he had paid. And, of course, the great response from David McCraw, the deputy general counsel of the New York Times, Bring it on. We welcome uh, your lawsuit because we're protected as long as there is not malice, malice of forethought, let's say, and there's not reckless disregard of the facts. And I would hope that we're never reckless in making decisions to publish, and, and I certainly uh, hope that there's never malice in making decisions. And so that is what the libel law protection provides. So, you know, journalists shouldn't be malicious and shouldn't be reckless. That's a pretty simple standard, but it doesn't always apply. And I think what Rosemary is saying is that the case here involving Sinclair was on the verge of being reckless if they had gone ahead and aired that about Dr. Fauci. So, so I just wanted to say one thing. We should take a break here and say you are listening to the Why Newspapers Are Always Right and Everybody Else Is Wrong show. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to mention that there was a, another libel case that was settled. That they, One of the issues is we don't know what happened. Do you remember Nicholas Salmon? He's a Covington Catholic high school student who was sued. Major news outlet following the controversial interaction with he and several of his classmates had with a Native American activist down in Washington a couple of years ago. They settled that lawsuit against the Washington Post last week or the week before, but the terms of the settlement are secret, so we don't know what happened with that. He sued the Washington Post and a couple of the major networks because they showed a portion of a video that didn't provide a, a lot of context for what happened in that interaction. Again, it's a libel case that got settled, but all of us in the industry are left wondering, I wonder who paid who? Exactly. It's kind of egregious when a media company is engaged in a libel case and refuses to tell journalists 
what's involved in the settlement, don't you think? Yeah, here, here. That was a scary case because when you look at it, it didn't seem like the Post did anything wrong. It reported on a video and on a public event, and still it was contested. And you know if it's a private settlement, they ended up paying something. Why and, and how much? How bad was the punishment? And what will, how will it affect coverage of public protests in the future? That's always the danger, that the the chilling effect of uh, lawsuits like this, if there are settlements made, um, journalists uh, never want to have their lawyers uh, plunge forward with a settlement um, because uh, you don't want anybody to get the impression that it's going to be easy to get money out of a media company just to get a case to go away. So we have, at least in my time at the Times Union, we've, well, it's almost unheard of. I can't remember any cases that actually have been filed against us, but certainly there have never been any lawsuits settled, fortunately. By the way, talking about credibility making a difference, you know, most Americans get their news from television, and it's worth making note of the fact that the most watched show on television and the new book, uh, the new numbers that have come out, was not The Bachelor, it wasn't Survivor. It was ABC's World News Tonight with David Muir. I think there's something to that, that people in this era are increasingly turning to real news programs. They want credible news, not just this digital stuff we've been talking about that may or may not be true. Is this not good news, in effect? You know what I thought when I when I saw that report is like, wow, ABC, hey? And then this weekend, my son has been setting up my television so that I use apps now instead of cable, which increasingly people are doing. And the one show, the new show that's easiest to get on the apps I have is ABC. And I wondered if it was technological laziness that was partly responsible. (laughs) This could be. But, you know, the other major news broadcasts, we've we've for years now sort of denigrated them as being, well, they're for older viewers, NBC Nightly News, the CBS Evening News. These are uh, shows that don't have the power they once did. But let's note, they're all putting up big numbers. Um, uh, CBS Evening News is, on many evenings, the most watched show on CBS. So um, this is uh, – let's just say that there is still some life in some of these old uh, outlets. Old, now we're saying, TV network news. You know, Alan probably remembers before it even existed, right? I do. I, <laughs> I remember all of it. I remember Hunley and Brinkley and Walter Cronkite. Yes, and I think one of the ways that you look at this, Rex, of course, is externally. In other words, what's going on that drives people to look for credible news? And right now we know what's going on. It's called Trump, and we are facing an election time, and the polls are showing disaster for Trump. At least now they are. So people want a measure of whether or not the country's in trouble or they're in trouble, and they go to And they do a credible job. They don't have much time. They have a good selection of news. It's almost like reading a newspaper. You get a a good variety. They have valuable news judgment. They have integrity. I think they've built up over the years. It does make my heart jump a little to know that people are embracing that and that Dancing with the Stars isn't beating them anymore. Now, what we haven't seen is the demographics, right? So, in other words, we know that they're winning, but do we know whether young people, for example, are looking at it? No, young people are out partying without masks. (laughs) (laughs) 
an amazing thing. You know, we are often reporting about the downturn for print. Last week, we talked about the last true daily newspaper in the state of Wyoming, the Casper Star Tribunes, turning down to five days a week instead of seven. But that doesn't mean that there is not a growing audience as there is for digital. You know, at the Times Union, we have the largest audience we've ever had. It's just that it isn't as lucrative as the audience we used to have in print. So we're all going through this transitional period of getting ourselves to a place where we can take advantage of the digital age and still try to make some money off it, which is what brings us back to the start of this. You can't sustain journalism without money to pay the reporters, editors, photographers, and so on. Now, you guys have been trying to figure this out for a long time. First, there was not going to be a paywall, then was a paywall. So is there an answer yet on the part of newspapers, or is this dance just continuing? I think the answer is not yet in. I think, you know, right now we have what you might call a flexible paywall, a dynamic paywall. And I think we'll see. The marketplace continues to evolve as it is for all products. But you can't give away your content, can't give away your products any more than you can walk into a shoe store and say, well, I've always bought shoes here. You should give me these shoes. Uh, the way we sometimes have could, customers could saying I've just, been a subscriber a long time. <laughs> Rex, very quickly, could you just define for us? Because I think if people are confu- may be confused as to what a flexible paywall might be. Oh, a dynamic paywall, I just mean that it depends upon where you are coming from, if you're in the market or not, whether you actually hit that wall that says, uh, now you have to pay us to read this story, or whether you've come to us many times over the past month, three times, five times. Those things increasingly companies are using now to determine when people actually have to pay for content and when they get to sample it for free. And Rex, what's the advantage of giving some of it away for free? So that people can see what the quality of your journalism. If you, you want to give people a, at least a couple of tastes of the work so that they get a chance to say, yeah, I, I think I like that. It's, uh, again, the shoe analogy. You want to be able to put the shoes on and feel what they're like before you buy them. Does this work? So far, it's working. In other words, you're getting more readers because you're giving them a taste. Yes. The balance of readership and revenue all comes together. So that's all we have time for today. You know, oh. actually, we try to end on a little bit of good news. Yeah. So sorry. Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith with gratitude to David Gustina, our producer, for helping us through all of this. And to you, our listeners, for joining us on The Media Project. They used to work like hell just for romance. But finally, the movies notwithstanding, they all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspapermen are such interesting people. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor-at-large of the Times Union. Judy Patrick is the Vice President for Editorial Development for the New York Press Association. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and former chair of the Department of Journalism at the University at Albany. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Ah, the publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. 
It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. 